0: Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. (laughs) To me, it feels now probably art historians would, you know, punch me in the face. I don't know, but um, I grew up in Jersey. So my imagery often goes to punching people in the face.
1: Um, You know that's what they do. (laughs) do. From the Coastalish land of Seattle, we're by the Sound. Your community invested podcast. Each episode, we speak with the brightest minds from Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. We discuss art and pop culture as well as local news and politics. I'm Sarah May, sitting this week with Asia Hauser. On this week's show, we'll meet with Seattle artist and arts educator Raven Juarez. We'll discuss her life, artwork, and approach to early childhood education. She'll then join us for a discussion of the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. This is By the Sound. Our guest today is Raven Juarez. In 2015, her first solo exhibition, titled Don't Touch, was in Brooklyn, New York, at The One Wall in Greenpoint. Since returning to the Pacific Northwest, Raven Juarez's work has been shown in Tacoma and Seattle at several notable showings, including Bloodlines in 2016, Protect the Sacred, Native Artists for Standing Rock at Spaceworks Gallery in 2017, Moon Moan at 950 Gallery in 2018, and last year at the yee exhibit at King Street Station. Raven is also lead preschool teacher at Roaring Mouse Creative Arts in Seattle's Maple Leaf neighborhood. She is also one of the most charming souls in all of Seattle. Raven Juarez, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: I would like to invite our listeners now to visit ravenjuarez.com, that's R-A-V-E-N-J-U-A-R-E-Z.com, where they can see some of your work that we referenced today. That link will also be in our show notes if you're able to get to it that way. For our listeners who can't see it at the moment, in a general sense, how would you describe your artwork?
2: It's very tricky for me to answer because I feel like I'm always, every time I sit down, I don't really know what's going to come out at the end. I'm very process-oriented. So I think that my art's very reflective of certain times and spaces and memories. But I wouldn't say there's one hallmark to the kind of work I do. I started out, like, For Don't Touch, for example, that first show, it was a lot of just pen and ink and a little bit of watercolor, a little bit of markers, a little bit of collage. But since then, I've gotten really into acrylic painting, which led me into more of mixed media. I started mixing in like crystals and thread, and I'm experimenting now with beads. I also did a little experimental collection of hand-carved stamps, and I'd used a lot of metallic inks and reclaimed frames. So it's, it's eclectic, I guess you could say.
1: And one reason I wanted to have you on the show is because I just I love it so much. Um, uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm a fan. Um, Thank you. First of all, there's the the works that are the kinds of things you would want to have uh, on a very large scale on your on your wall, like Familiar Place, like uh, The Thicket like Dreamscape, I would also include Land and Sky um, as as something I'd love to see, very big. But then there's also the most recent work, which has so much texture, honest look, is uh, just breathtaking, the way it literally comes off the frame. Mm -hmm. Is that you?
2: That's such a good question. Actually, I did a lot of stuff with my face in the recent years, and people always ask if it's me, and it is based off of my face, like I was using myself as a reference, but from my artistic Expression frame of mind. It's actually my grandma. Mm. She and I look so similar. I found a picture of her a couple of years back, and I couldn't believe that it wasn't a picture of me. Mm-hmm. It was in mm-hmm. black and white, and it just. We have my family is really strong genetic code on my mom's side. Like I, people always tell me I look a lot like my mom, but looking at pictures of my grandma in her youth and even like as a teen, it's very strikingly similar to me, and it's something I think about a lot. How it's almost like when I look in the mirror, I'm seeing my grandmother's face. I think a lot about how different our experiences are walking through the world with a really almost exactly the same face and just such different experiences, such different paths. I mean, she grew up in a world that I can't even imagine. I've grown up with so much privilege and so much support. And, you know, in recent times where the world is just way more accepting. And, I get, I get, you know, being Native was almost kind of like a— it was like a dirty word in my grandma's time and it was a really Mm -hmm. hard thing to be in a hard way to be a woman and so I feel really blessed and full of gratitude that I get to kind of carry her legacy and carry her face into this new world and live with her face did you know her context I know her now yes um my grandma Yvonne she's wonderful Um, She did most of the raising of me and my sister when we were really little. I learned, and she's like my strongest connection I have to my Blackfeet heritage. She's the one who told me stories and sang to me. And her and my papa were like the two strongest figures of my young life. And I think about them all the time. My grandpa passed away uh, about five years ago. But I still think about him all the time. And he was Cherokee. uh, And he would like play the flute for us and tell us stories and sing to us. He had a long braid down his back. And I really, people ask me all the time, like, what's your connection to your nativeness? Like, how native are you? And it's tough because, you know, I wasn't raised on the reservation and I have had just a life of an abundance of privilege. But I, my, my mind and my heart always goes back to my grandma and my grandpa and just the love and the unconditional love and support they gave me. And I think it had a lot to do with the person I've grown into.
1: And you're saying... These generations, just by looking in the mirror, and is that something that has helped you paint with such expressiveness? Watcher, for example, is such a striking and powerful look. The emotions are coming right through. One you have, I wouldn't think as you is sees through. It's uh, the woman in sees through has four eyes, and it creates a dissonance around the center of the image, uh, that's like, it it almost feels blurry. And I don't know what sort of optical like sorcery you're employing here, but I I look at it and I feel like I'm
2: gives you a headache a little bit.
1: A little bit. Yeah. What what the hell is that?
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, like I said, uh, when I, sit down to work, I don't really know what's going to come out. Um, but this is one of the few pieces that I had an intention when I sat down. And it was for Moon Moan, I created this specifically. And it was making it because I was thinking about my little sister Memphis. And my little sister is my absolute best friend, my biggest inspiration, the purest soul I think I you could ever find in the world. Just, Just good all the way down to her marrow, just so good. And her Indian name, her native given name, translates to "sees Through the Lodge. And she got that at her naming ceremony with my mom. And it's because of her ability to have such a strong sense of intuition and her ability to not just see things on surface level, but really understand them from every dimension, every point of view. And that's so true about her. And I kind of wanted to pay homage to that name and to everything she's been through and her strength. And... As I was drawing it, I meant to have her eyes just really big and like a focal point, but because I don't plan it out, I hadn't sketched it. I just was free going, and I made the eyes that I settled on way too low. Then I drew a second pair of eyes a little bit too high, and then I was like, I'll just draw the next pair of eyes like right in the middle. And then I decided, oh, you know what? This actually makes more sense because showing her looking from different vantage points. So it was totally an accident that they came that way, but it was definitely – in theme with what I was trying to portray, so and actually, my aunt Shelley bought that piece. It's with my family still.
0: I have a. I don't. I'm projecting onto your uh, painting the rib. Mm-hmm. It's called rib, not the. Um, that it somehow has to do with biblical rib and Eve and or Adam and or a non binary version of them. So I'd love for you to say more about that one. Uh, you
2: totally got it. Um,
0: <laughs> I win. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well,
2: I had when I was working on that. I let's see, where was I? I was living in Green Lake, and I, it was the first painting I had done in a while. I was kind of, bra- you know, you go through little spells where you haven't really been producing much, and it's all just kind of scribbles and nonsense. So I was coming at the end of one of those long spells, and I was thinking a lot about my college experience. And in college, a big chunk of that was my time in Italy and my time at taking art history classes in Italy. So believe it or not, there's a ton of religious art there. And I think that I was kind of channeling that experience and thinking about myself kind of coming out of the weeds, as it were. Um, and the little, it kind of looks like a halo, but like made of needles or something come out of her head. So she's almost like a Christ figure and a Madonna and an Eve and an Adam. And I think it was kind of my way of reclaiming, like, I can decide what fine art is to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be, you know, a perfect mother and child or a perfect, or, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I just was kind of taking that age old, millennia old story. And kind of just recreating it in my own image and something that aesthetically I like to see and that meant something to me. And it's about coming out of the woods and coming out of the thicket and getting back on your path, but it's also about taking yourself with you, if that Mm, makes sense.
0: It does. Many, many years ago, I was in Italy, like 28 years ago, and... The imagery was while beautiful was also I felt a sense of sameness. Mm -hmm. It was kind of they all went to the same art school. Oh no, they (laughs) all had this exact same book, the art of painting. The same book. So I I very much appreciate when artists um, offer their own interpretations of not only scripture but just even the divine and and or kind of representation of how humanity has interpreted art. Uh, did you get to see Gahinde Wiley, uh, his uh, exhibit at the Seattle Arts Museum, which there was that, I, I just went through it. Actually, I went twice because I needed to absorb... The beauty and the imagery of black people mm-hmm. and black faces and black bodies, where it would only be these lily milky white mm-hmm. <laughs> people. I think I was playing on that with my transparent,
2: oh, yeah, body humanoid,
0: yeah. creature. It's almost just,
2: almost like an alien too.
0: It is almost English, <laughs> yeah. So I just I, I appreciate that because it made me, when you were talking, I'm like, oh yeah, Kehinde Wiley also reclaimed the imagery that has been
2: so... Yeah, I I did see that show, and I also went through it twice. I loved it so much, and I had the same feeling. It was kind of, especially the ornate frames and just the size and the scale and the detail, it's almost, it was like a religious offering, but in a totally secular space and context, and it was just about just like the majesty of humanness and... I thought that was wonderful. And I also had the same feeling when I was going through Europe and looking at art. And I got in a lot of trouble with both my art history teachers, professors, and art professors, like the actual instructors of my art classes. But that's kind of been a hallmark of my entire time creating.
0: (laughs) Because you're a rebel, which I love.
1: (laughs) And for better or worse, I think for better, I think those teachers would, I, I would guess, appreciate the technical skill that you Picked up. I was really struck by dreams. Nice of you to say. I'm no expert, but I was struck by uh, Dreamscape Mm -hmm. from 2015, and
2: that was my one of my first. Like, I'm making a serious painting. Paintings.
1: Well, you add such texture to the background. It it feels like cubism overlaying a impressionistic background, which has a, a lot of texture, and then even. I, I believe it's surrealist influences, like the bottle there. You know, I'm I'm seeing a lot of the style and method of the, you know, technically great artists um, all coming to the fore uh, in your work at the same time.
2: That's really – thank you for saying that. Um, you know what's interesting um, is I always consider myself not very technically gifted. Like I don't have really? great technique. Oh, I for mean, fuck's
1: sake. Were I mean – yes,
2: uh, for real though like um you you know yeah in art school especially you're confronted all the time with like this is how it should be this is how it should be and i've always had a lot of pushback to that cuz i really believe that everybody creates their own pictorial language and i believe it starts the very first time you give a child a crayon or a pen or a stick in the sand i think that everybody's developing their own unique language and it's primarily to talk to yourself it doesn't really matter what another person's eyes see when they look at it. And because of that, I, like I mentioned, got in trouble a lot with my art teachers because I just refused to follow directions. And what I say now is because I teach art classes to kids, but I also teach to adults. And I kind of preface my classes for adults as I don't teach technique, but I will teach you a mindset. And I'm not a great renderer, but I'm a great practicer. And I can teach you to feel good about just practicing and getting in touch with yourself and learning what feels good to your hand, what feels good to your eyes. And I think that no matter how much actual, like, fine motor skill you have, you can create beautiful work if you're just brave enough to be in touch with yourself and let yourself go there and get there.
0: One of the things that felt like torture when I was growing up in the 70s was McDonald's used to have, they used to have a contest that you colored a picture of whatever and you had to color in the lines. And it was always white kids that did it. I never could. And I was always bummed. And it wasn't until I met a teacher in high school who said, the worst thing to do to children is to give them things to color. You should get give a, that. I 100% agree. 100%. I don't give children
2: coloring pages. Oh my I God. don't even draw pictures for children. They're the worst. Well, I think it really teaches kids, like, I'm not capable. Like, yeah. I'm not able to. And exactly. I think that that's the mo- biggest disservice you can do to young children at the time where they're just developing, you know, their sense of self, their sense of identity, their voice, their perspective. I really think it's a, it's a responsibility of people who are caretaking or parents of young children to make them very self-assured that their perspective is valuable and the way they express themselves is valuable and it doesn't need to be mandated and it doesn't need to have expectation. It just
1: can be. And you are currently teaching at Roaring Mouse in Maple Leaf. And I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes because I brought my oldest son there uh, for his uh, fifth birthday party.
2: Really? And, the birthday uh, parties are amazing.
1: Yeah, it from my parental perspective, that was the most fun. So you're around these kids every day, the ones that are enrolled uh, in, in the preschool program. Mm-hmm. What what are they teaching you?
2: Uh, you know, that's I've been teaching at this school. This is my first year at Roaring Mouse. But before that, I was teaching a uh, toddler class from one to three-year-olds. And before that, I was teaching... Um, an infant to one-year-old class in Brooklyn and then a little bit another age group in Brooklyn as well. But, um, I feel like I'm learning all the time from the kids. And I think that I wouldn't have any art career whatsoever if it wasn't for my career in education. Um, mostly because it's the kids who got, who get me inspired. It's working with them and their energy that, gets me coming home at the end of the day feeling like I still have more to put into the world. The kids teach me when I'm working, you know how there's always a negative voice kind of in the back of your head who's it's like oh that looks terrible. Oh, don't do that. Why would you try that? That that's bad idea.
1: <laughs> how do you hear inside my head? <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. I feel like we all have that when we're trying to do something creative and instead of kind of giving into it and being like you're right, I better go back to watching a movie or something. <laughs> um I think about, you know, what would I say if one of my students was like, I can't do it. I don't want to. It's too hard. I don't know how. I would say, well, what's feeling hard about it? Let's work on it together. What are you trying to do? How can I, how can we celebrate what you have already here? And, you know, just kind of having more compassion with myself and having more patience with myself. And that has really freed me up to try a lot of things I wouldn't have ever tried otherwise. I also just love how kids They'll sit and work on something as long as they're satisfied by just the process of doing. And then when they're not, they just stop and they'll go do something else. And it really bugs me when teachers are like, no, come back. You need to finish what you started. You need to finish this thing. I think it's such an amazing gift that they teach us. Like As an artist, sometimes you're pushing and pushing and pushing and – it's not fun anymore. And that's when the art gets bad and you ruin things. And I think it's such a great gift for me to be like, hmm, my hand isn't enjoying the feeling. My eyes aren't enjoying the looking. Maybe I can give myself permission to take a break, go on a walk, have a cup of tea, like lay down, just something else. And when I feel like it again, I can come back. It doesn't have to be like a on the clock. This is your time to make something good.
1: Yeah, so you would probably uh, endorse a Montessori education. Reggio. Uh, Reggio. Oh, is that is that another method? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay.
2: I'm all Reggio all day. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really similar. What,
1: what is the distinction? Is, is there?
2: Um, there's a couple. I mean, it, that could be a whole other huge convo. But like in a nutshell, Montessori is very similar to Reggio. They're both from Italy, and they're both um, early education philosophies. Uh, reggio is a little bit more community based. And it's a little bit more about the image of the child and celebrating who that child is and giving them That we call it the hundred languages, which means we're open to receiving that child's expression and perspective and way of viewing the world and engaging with the world in a hundred different ways. I don't know as much about Montessori, but I do know a little bit. I know that it's a little bit more about the individual. It's a little bit more like these are the skills that we're going to teach you through play. And these are the self-help skills and self-advocation skills, like sweeping and, you know, tying your own shoes and certain kinds of puzzles, you know. Mm -hmm. Where Reggio is much more like loose parts and like uh, open-ended and uh, non-adult derived ideas it's taking the children's ideas and helping facilitate them and making them reality
0: children are the ultimate making art for themselves Mm -hmm. they will draw something that will make zero sense to me but they'll have a whole story Mm -hmm. it's like it is they're perfectly they understand what they drew and why and what um and i was grateful that i had um this high school teacher who said you know it was wrong that anyone gave you An outline. And so with my children, I try to just give them um, construction paper and pencils
2: and. Yeah, you gotta keep it open. Just leave it open. I I think that all the time, too, because sometimes you'll have an idea in your head as a teacher where you're like, oh, it'd be so fun if we could all get all the kids to make this kind of thing. And then halfway through, one kid's like, Can I have some scissors? And you're like, Why? And like, <laughs> no. And then they're like, oh, I just want to cut it like this and I want to do that. And it's so tricky to be like, But then it won't match the wall display for the classroom. But you know what? You've got to give in. Just give them the scissors. Like, it's their thing. you got to let them go with it. Um, that reminds me actually, I straight up have just stolen children's artwork before and used it in my own. Um, <laughs> Not stolen. I asked their permission. I felt like I, I, I felt
1: like I saw a mischievous glance in your eyes. I'm like, oh, this is this is hardcore, right? Here. I
2: mean, especially with the toddlers. Like some I don't know if you will follow my Instagram, but I post a lot mm-hmm. of uh to my story and that is in part to share with my audiences, like what I'm inspired exp- by and excited by at work, but it's mostly for me so I can go home and be like, look at how this kid just fiercely dipped their paintbrush in every single palette. And we always say, don't do that. But then look, she made rainbow, beautiful swirls and just like somehow expertly knew exactly how to do it. But one time, I had a student, and he was just drawing with a black felt-tip pen on watercolor paper, and he was doing them so quickly. He would just go, do-do-do, done, do-do-do, do-do, done. Uh And he was just churning them out. And I know other educators kind of don't like that because they're like, that's a big waste of paper, and he should use both sides, and we like make him finish the picture before he throws it away. But I thought it was really interesting, and when he laid them all out, there was like a clear, you could see... A development. You could see there was something he was practicing and working on, and it had to exist in its own space. It couldn't just be he did it in one little area and then moved over and tried again in one little area of the same page. He needed that whole space to, to make sense of what he was working on. I asked him if I could keep one of those pictures, oh, yeah. and he said yes, and that's the skeleton of the painting someone helped. Uh, I literally took that picture home, and I glued it to a canvas, and I painted over it. And it's that circle one right there. Yep.
1: Mm. So Someone Helped is the second row down on the far right. I Mm -hmm. see.
2: Um, I glued it to a canvas. I painted over it. And I just gave myself that same permission that he gave himself while he was doing that big series. I just was like, just use it as a skeleton. Build around it. Build the space. And don't question it. Just stop when you're done. And... That's what came out of it, and you can kind of see faintly his yeah. little indents yeah. are still in there. And for me, that's like a metaphor for like how we all are just like building a world around mm. our first impressions as children. We're building everything out from our first little bones and that's our first deep. little <laughs> scratches that were made on us. And um, so that's a really know special you piece. Did you did that? Uh, no, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think I told his parents; they were cool with it.
0: How do you teach babies art? Because you said I need to art for infants. I'm like, oh, how that's
2: how does a good that question.
0: The, well, depends on your de- definition of a baby. Is you mean like a child under one years old? Whoever you were teaching, because you said you taught eighteen months and over, with and then you said infant to eighteen months, and I'm like, yeah. huh, that's a little trickier. Oh, it is, but it's fun,
2: and you know, it has a lot to do with just different kinds of experiences. It's not so much like you put a paintbrush in their hand and say, draw an apple for me, Mm -hmm. this is red. Um, It's a lot of playing with light, um, Mm -hmm. reflective surfaces on mirrors. It's a lot of playing with uh, shadows Mm -hmm. and giving them the opportunity to explore shadows. And that also builds a really strong sense of identity and self to understand, like, oh, I'm causing this shape, and I am that shape, and Mm. the shape is me. And just those first kind of pathways to understanding the idea of having a sense of self, like, I'm not everything. What's the youngest class you've had? Uh, The youngest
0: class I've taught art with was probably uh, four months to just under a year. So four months you would have, you would then, like, they'd be sitting, I guess, in a car seat type situation, right? Mm -hmm. No.
2: Uh, For like a four-month-old, they'd probably be like laying
0: on their back. And then you would do something on the ceiling? Yeah,
2: have something projected and they could like put their hand on there. Um, But like even kids like six months to ten months, you can give them finger paints, obviously. There's a really great technique I like to do, which is just kind of an invitation where you fill up a Ziploc bag with ones just, like, with water and ones, like, with sparkles in water and ones with, like, a color of paint and ones with two colors of paint and then maybe ones, like, black and white paint and you just duct tape them to the ground. Mm. And if the child is able to crawl, they can, like, crawl between the different ones Uh, and see how things are mixing and notice how things are moving. And it's a really good mess-free way of just giving them that introduction to, like, Mm. how different materials move and how they mix and what the— What their impact on it can be. Mm -hmm. Is that part of Reggio? Uh, That's, I mean, Reggio is really very open-ended, but that's that's something you'll see in Reggio boards a lot. Reggio for young kids often looks like a lot of light, like projector play, having Mm -hmm. a projector and having them put things on it and notice the shadows, Mm -hmm. a lot of loose parts, creating things in the moment and just Mm -hmm. having it be what it is for that time. Yeah. Um, But there's a ton of stuff you can do with really young children. Uh, One of my favorite things, there's a Reggio video I watched at the NARIA conference, I think it was a couple years ago, where this teacher of very young toddlers just brought out... Every kind of pen you can imagine, highlighters, pens, markers, pencils, everything you can think of, and just dumped it out on a big piece of paper for these like, little children to explore. And Mostly, they're just taking off the caps and seeing what caps fit on other mm. things. They're not really doing a lot of mark making, but they're touching the materials. They're noticing the difference. They have their hands on it, yeah. and they're excited, and they're interested, and they're invested. That's the kind of stuff that really inspires me. I like to give kids the opportunity and the invitation just to see what they can do with something without being like, hold it like this, draw it like this. And I think that that is really what gives kids the confidence. When they get the idea, they're like, this came from me. Now I'm really into it. As opposed to if you draw something for a kid and like color this in, it feels more like an obligation than a than yeah. a discovery. Cool. That's
1: and awesome. I, I loved what you were saying earlier about a um, 100 languages. Mm-hmm. Um, my littlest had been diagnosed with severe childhood apraxia of speech and began speech therapy at the age of three and worked very hard. He still works really hard at that. Just to note that because verbal language came so late to him, he was very much compensating in so many ways mm-hmm. that we're just delightful mm-hmm. to see a lot of play acting. I uh, see it all the time. Yeah. All
2: the time. And I really make that a very, when I have conferences with parents like, yeah, the speech is a little delayed, you know, you can follow whatever avenues you want to do to support them with that. But because of that, they're still, they're still emoting and still processing and still communicating just as clearly with all these other ranges of activities and languages and also on the flip side i have some parents whose children started talking super duper early Mm. and who aren't that um, uh, developed in their like pictorial schemas where their drawings look more like a child's a year behind them which concerns parents they're like oh no what's wrong and i'm like well it's a Art is a, a, a language, and it comes out of necessity. And if your child has been talking since they're one and a half in full like full sentences, they're not going to need to use their hands to they draw to express
0: themselves. in other
2: ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it doesn't mean it won't come, but it doesn't happen in the same time frame. Mm. Some kids, it'll be really early here, and then a big gap, and then the next one will come, and some kids will move through them really quickly. Some kids have a big space. Um, but it's always the same order, and everyone's going to get there, and... I really think that that's a driving message that I feel like I'm telling parents a lot is like, don't worry about how they get there or when they get there. Just let them enjoy their journey. Let them enjoy the process and they'll get there.
0: It's the weird fucking hyper competitive bullshit. That is the United States. Cause when my kids were younger, Mm. they did everything late just to annoy me. (laughs) They didn't. I mean, they did do everything late it wasn't to annoy me, but it was when, you know, I had a cohort of priests. They went to a co-op preschool that I loved. Um, and other, my, every other kid walked first, talked first, everything, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm, and then finally I was like, now that they're 18 and 21, I'm like, what the hell is that about? That I was even thinking about it because eventually they get there mm-hmm. and to, to create a competition where there is none. It's heartbreaking that we have that because we project onto our children really unhealthy things when it comes to that. Like That so really cool what stuff. it is,
2: is, is a projection of the yeah. parents feeling like, and there's something my director would always say to parents. Um, She would say, grow the tree you've got. Mm. And I love that, and I always remind myself of that when I'm talking to parents because it does feel like you have this image of your child and what they're going to be and what they're going to do. And, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I've heard enough parents tell me this that it just feels very true to me is you, you live your whole life with this idea of this child in your heart, and then they're real, and you want them... You want to see what you imagined grow and grow the way you imagined it growing. And sometimes you think you have, like, an apple tree and it's a palm tree. And you're like, where's your branches? Where's your apples? And it just keeps growing up and up and it's all crazy. And then suddenly you have coconuts. And nobody said apples are better than coconuts. I think it's a really big symptom of just our capitalist, like, hyper- aware, like always winning, always trying to be first place. And with childhood, there is no first place. Everyone's in their own race.
0: It's not even a race, I guess. Everyone's on their own walk and they should just enjoy it. One of the things I read about the industrial revolution in this country is schools came out of um, conditioning children to be factory workers, basically. And that model hasn't changed much. No. It's beautiful that you have, we should all be in occupations and spaces that bring us satisfaction and joy and not be this grind that we've been conditioned in the united states to think how we're supposed to live well it's so hard though yeah it's hard because um i
2: feel like i struggle with this a lot and i think my art helps me deal with it but you know especially coming from the daughter of two lawyers it feels hard for me to be like i'm like is this am I taking the easy way out am I doing like the easy thing just because I like teaching kids and I like and I like doing art like (laughs) you know what I mean though like it should feel I feel like it should feel harder and also it's like well I'm not I'm also I mean I can support myself and I have but it feels like man I got every opportunity in the world they paid for my college they're willing to pay for grad school and I'm just choosing to play with Play-Doh and paint pictures and I could be you know a fancy lawyer or something big. And I struggle with that a lot. Like, is it selfish or wrong to use my privilege for something that just feels good to me instead of, you know, what other people would kill for the same
1: thing. But you're doing an important job. And uh just because capitalism isn't rewarding it doesn't change that if you were able to Survive or thrive, uh, maintain a, you know a reasonable amount of comfort while doing that, and not go nuts the way a whole lot of adults, possibly even myself, would being around that cohort. Seventeen-year-olds. <laughs> so if if you can do that without you know swearing a lot or uh, losing your temper, if if that's enriching to you, which it really seems like it is, then damn. Thank you. Like, thanks for that, and I I wish it was better compensated. It's just yet another type of work that is is necessary but isn't being rewarded by Mm -hmm. our system. And it it frightens me for however long humanity has left. It's uh, frightening to me um, what isn't going to be nourished by our profit-driven economy, um that is absolutely necessary and that, that would include teachers and um you know the need for nurses the need for late late in life care mm-hmm. um compassion compassion work yeah not not a huge market for it
0: what you're doing is the goddess's work it's it's the work that the most important thing is to nurture the spirit of another the most of any age and and it's just beautiful and inspiring, and art especially. My mother in law was an artist. Th- there was a light in her, and a and a passion, and a beauty, and a and for a brief time, she was a realtor, and she hated every minute of it because that was just going against her who she was and her creativity and her pa- She was a palm tree trying to produce apples, and it was not. Of course, it wasn't. But but the you know her peers and. And I, thankfully, um, I have a couple of her pieces, but my daughter thankfully got to know her a little bit. She was, uh, 10 when she died, but, um, her, when her grandmother died, but she would sit with them and teach her watercolor and just give her a blank piece. And, you know, you, and just really knew almost instinctively to nurture in her grandchildren, um, the like I never saw her correct them like just what you're saying was her instinct she wasn't a teacher she sculpted and she painted and she did mixed media um I think there's a big difference between teachers
2: who teach art as part of the curriculum Mm -hmm. and artists who become teachers oh
0: yeah I've noticed
2: that um and it's really interesting because I mostly work with well, before Roaring Mouse, Roaring Mouse is a great place because everybody there, all the everyone who works there is an artist in some way. Mm. so that kind of gives us on common ground. But in the past, almost every school I taught at, I was the only one who like identified like as an artist, and you know, teaching art is a big part of curriculum for preschool. There are just so many questions and debates and conversations about you know, how do we teach them to use a pencil? How do we teach them to use a paintbrush? How do we teach them to do this? And before I learned Reggio, and really got indoctrined into that frame of thinking, it was really challenging for me to watch other teachers be like, you know, we're gonna have them hold the pencil this way and all the kids are gonna cut out a circle and then they're gonna glue it like this. And it would end up being like mostly the teachers creating the product and the kid just kind of having a like just kind of like a peanut gallery view of what was going on. Or like, you know, the, the teacher would dip their hand in paint and put it on a thing and then draw it into a I don't know, a turkey or whatever. That's just the classic example. But that's really what it was. And it was really hard for me as an artist because my instinct was to just let them play around with stuff. And Reggio really encourages that and that free exploration. And I think that it's challenging for people who are teachers who have just an education background and you have a goal and a curriculum to trust that kids will get there on their own. But when you're thinking about it as a language, just like, just like people before you speak in sentences and use words, you babble, children scribble. And that's how they're practicing those sounds and practicing those words is through just playing and trying stuff out. And eventually they start to refine and um, practice certain strokes, certain shapes, and that becomes a language that you can understand. But just because you can't understand a child's babbling doesn't mean that it's doesn't have that they're not trying to express something. And just yeah, because you can't communicating. exactly, and just because you can't uh, decipher what's in a child's scribbles doesn't mean that it's nothing.
0: Are there resources for parents that maybe won't have their kids in preschool for whatever reason mm-hmm. that you can suggest that they can do some of this with them? Mm,
2: yeah, um, there's a ton of Reggio. Groups on Facebook you mm-hmm. can find mm-hmm. uh, that uh, offer all kinds of projects and invitations you can do at home with your kids or in small groups. Uh, there's also the book, 100 Languages of Children, and uh, that's a Reggio-like staple. Uh, there's also the Loose Parts books. Um, there's also a book called Beautiful Stuff.
1: We'll put all those in the show notes.
2: Okay. And— um, Let's think. Uh, there's also Fairy Dust Teaching. I look at a lot of their stuff. Uh, Teacher Tom from Seattle is an amazing resource. He has a website. And it's just loaded with uh, documentation of the way he interacts with his students. And he's a huge inspiration for me as well. Um, I love Teacher Tom. Uh, and also my Instagram, I post a lot of stuff on there uh, of just fun things you can do. Is it Raven Juarez? It's Raven underscore in the trees. Okay. Yeah, I've had that one for a while. I've had that since college, but I can't bring myself to change the name.
0: So you were must have been encouraged. Someone in your life created the space so that you could be you. Or did you feel that way or
2: I think it had a lot to do with that my parents gave me just a lot of like respect and space. Um, my earliest drawing memories are sitting under my mom's desk as a lawyer. I mean, she was a lawyer, not me. And um, and uh, just, like, filling up page after page on a yellow legal pad with a blue point pen and just, like, r- making stories. It was just my way of, like, checking in with myself my whole life long. And my mom always kind of um, – She made me—my mom and my dad, they made me feel, like, seen when I would show them something. And it became another way of communicating with them as a young child. Like, if my dad hurt my feelings, I would leave a picture of, like, a broken heart somewhere where he could see it. Or, like, one time he, like, yelled at me and my sister because we wouldn't go to bed on time. And I drew a picture of him with this huge mouth and (sighs) me and my sister crying and, like, a sea of tears. And it was so moving to him. He was like, I'll never yell at you again. And he never did. (laughs) Um, he found other ways to express himself. Um, so I think that that kind of gave me the idea of like that art is powerful and that I can use it not just to talk to myself, but to convey things that are too, too tricky to say in words.
1: You mentioned your mother and I should, uh, disclose for our listeners. Your mother, Deborah is one of my dearest friends. This is how we met and she's also a city council member Mm -hmm. and she first ran for office i believe back in 1996
2: do you remember uh that time really well actually i remember getting our photo shoot and we had this sign you know vote warres and we were sitting in a little canoe in the backyard and i didn't even know what it was about (laughs) a canoe Uh, yeah we used to have a canoe yeah because we lived on holler (laughs) lake Oh, okay, Uh right, right, okay. That was a big part of our childhood. Was out in that canoe, but yeah, I remember that, and I remember her complaining, like this: somebody's being mean to mommy and is saying Uh not nice things that aren't true. And I was like, we gotta beat him, (laughs) like we gotta win. And I didn't even know what it was about. Really, I did. Five year olds, what are you gonna think about? I just knew someone was up against my mom, and that she should win. And I've always thought of my mom as like the smartest, strongest person. And it's kind of just anxiety-inducing, and not so much because of the political stuff. It's more just the amount of negative stuff online that I've had to see through both Mm. of the elections. And, I mean, nobody likes to see or hear mean things about their mother. Uh, But, you know, I I was sensitive to it, and it hurt my feelings. And what's interesting is it didn't really hurt her feelings. She's kind of got really thick skin and— She really helped me learn, like, you know, you got to do what you have to do to stand by your convictions and be brave, despite what other people may think about it. That's really given me a lot of freedom as I've kind of—I'm turned 28 this year, and I feel like I'm finally starting to feel like an adult. And as I'm finally feeling like an adult, I feel a lot more empowered to say what I think, even if other people don't like it. And she's really a model for that, and doing what I think is right— um, even when it's inconvenient for me or when it makes it harder for me to feel comfortable in a social situation. I I feel like very empowered by her as my role model.
0: I'm curious how you like the East Coast because that's where I'm from. I've had a, I had a, I've been here seven years and I miss the East Coast. Hmm.
2: But I I'm, I'm, Seattle's,
0: as I said, <laughs> Seattle's growing on me like moss. Yeah,
2: I heard that. Um, my experience in New York was great. Brooklyn was everything that like all the TV shows make it seem like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like rent was expensive. Yep. It was crazy. We went to the bars and had like PBRs and whiskey shots and played pool and like all the girls with their stick and poke tattoos. It was a thing. It was a vibe. Um, and I liked it. And I was teaching there at the same time, but it really wore me down. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever got closer to like feeling like an exposed nerve as I did when I was just grinding away in Brooklyn. I was working, I was working like three or four different jobs all the time. And as a teacher, I was making $11 an hour. Oh my God. And I'm getting
1: a real broad city vibe. From all
2: of this. <laughs> <laughs> we and my best friend who lived together often watch that show when we're like, mm-hmm. what's happening? Is this us? Uh-huh. That was when I really learned that kids were my. This is gonna sound creepy, but they're kinda of like my medicine. Like I feel like that was the first time I really realized, like, God, I feel awful except when I'm at work. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's not the usual balance in life. Is you're supposed to feel bad at work and good everywhere else. But I just felt like I felt like it was just hard. It was hard to get everywhere. It was hard to be anywhere. Even just to get a cup of coffee or to like go down the street, I felt like someone was always yelling at me or I was always in someone's way. And I would just really look forward to being in my classroom, like with my friends, my little friends, being creative and being messy and having space and also just having kids in the city. I mean, I was also a nanny and like shuffling around two kids and a dog like on the subway and like trying to go to parks and trying to keep them safe. And it felt like I was always on high, high, high alert. And I just couldn't. Put a guard down, even for a second, if you're, like, outside your apartment. And even inside our apartment, like, the first night I moved into my, one of my new apartments, there was a gunshot right outside, and it scared the crap out of me. Like, being from North Seattle, there's some gunshots, but they always sound kind of far away. And then our second apartment, listen to this, when we moved in, the fridge was full of standing water and maggots. Um, the tub was full of loose hair and random Polaroid pictures. Oh! Crime scene. Ooh, yeah, gross. and it was just like the dirtiest, scariest mm. place you could ever... And we we had no choice. We had to move there because uh. our other lease was ending, and we that was what we got. We had a gas leak there, and... They wouldn't fix the gas leak because the gas company said there were too many dead rats in the basement to get to the (sighs) machines. So they were like, just leave your window open. And we, like, couldn't light a candle because we didn't want to – it was just –
0: it's such like a New York thing to it say. It's just so just hard. To open your window. Yeah, it was yeah, just. It like was that. just hard, man. <laughs> How? Long, please tell me you got out of there in a year. Yeah, we had one
2: one year lease there, and then we moved back to Seattle. Oh, you both and, did. Yeah, me and my boyfriend. Yeah, and literally every apartment we've had in Seattle since then, even though they are small and crazy expensive compared to New York, we're like luxury. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you grew up in uh, Seattle and Tacoma. Right?
2: Uh yeah I. I grew up mostly, I mean, my childhood childhood was right around here, right on Holler Lake. And then when I was about 10, my family moved to Bremerton. And uh, my dad still has his house there. But when my parents split up, my mom moved to a house in Tacoma. And then when she was diagnosed with cancer, she moved to Seattle to be closer to the hospitals and whatnot. And then we were back in the... And she beat it, I hope. Three times. Great.
1: Have you noticed change or is it more of a, a, you know, frog in the boiling water kind of thing?
2: No, it's, I'm very aware of the boiling. Um, <laughs> when I moved back from New York after being gone for six years, that's when it really, the the Seattle I knew as a child that I walked around with, with my parents is not the Seattle I see anymore. It's just not the same. Like, I feel like sometimes I'll be driving around. And I'm like, wait, this is that same street my babysitter lived on. And none of the houses look the same. And just everything's different and I even drove by my old house on Holler Lake the other day and there's a McMansion sitting there and they cut down my apple tree so it's just like um, small things like that that you would really only notice if you had a history in certain places but also big things like downtown and you know Amazon and there's there's some things that are very clear like oh that's gentrification, that's growth that's this um, but then there's you know small things that are more personal like my favorite coffee shops or Certain parks that, you know, now are kind of, I don't want to say like forgotten, but they're kind of just like, places just seem to have been sucked up by something else around here lately. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, that's perfect with description. Just even in the seven years I've been here, um, Jackson 23rd, South Jackson 23rd, there used to be a Red Apple supermarket that's gone. Um, there's certain things that even just in seven years— I was getting used to and are gone and now there seems to be everything's turning into a high rise or Mm -hmm. at least an apartment building Mm -hmm. and yeah. I mean, it
2: wasn't just apartment shopping. We just moved to Greenwood, but it was impossible because we were trying to stay on Capitol Hill, but every single apartment in our price range, which was the price we were paying at the apartment we were moving out of, every single thing was like a micro studio Mm -hmm. with no window, like or zero bedrooms. Yeah, there's literally one, every single one was zero bedrooms, zero and bedrooms. I need space to have my art stuff. And I was yeah. like, how am I supposed to do this? I could, I, I can't imagine because there's so many people here, and it was so much money all of a sudden. But I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm from here. Like, there should be a place for me. And it felt, I'm happy to be back in D5, but it felt a little jarring to not be literally able to find a single space that I could make work for my lifestyle in the area I wanted
1: to be. Have you seen any uh, positive change in the years, that, especially when you came back from uh, I'm happy Brooklyn? to
2: see uh, so many women and women of color on Seattle City Council. Yes. I think that's pretty amazing. And, you know, I, I think this is probably because of my perspective working with so many kids and families and schools, but... I'm seeing a lot of energy from families about not just an emphasis on anti-bias education, but anti-racist education. And I hear a lot from families saying, we know we're not from here. We know this is like our background, but we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to be allies. Um, And parents have come to me a lot of the time, like thanking me for the impact I have on their, not just their kids, but their whole family of um, helping people children, to feel like they have a place that they belong and have many, many types of people represented in our classroom spaces. I don't know if that wasn't happening in Seattle before, but it, was nice. it struck me that mm-hmm. it's something that's on everybody's radar. And it wasn't something that I felt like was so much on the radar in New York. There, everyone was kind of just like, here's my kid. This is the juice, you know? Um, But I feel like there's a lot of emphasis now on people wanting to be allies and wanting their kids to grow up knowing, you know, how to treat other human beings. Mm -hmm. And it gives me a lot of hope for the future of Seattle, that these are going to be the kids that grow up in our city and that they're going to have really strong sense of values and identity and um, not only be self-advocates, but know how to advocate for other people and how to say something is wrong when something looks wrong. Um, and that makes me feel really proud of the communities I worked in.
1: What kind of city would you like to see Seattle become?
2: I think that there's always more room in any city for just more kindness and compassion, and I think that there's a lot of people who think of themselves as kind, compassionate people, and I don't think this is just Seattle, but because this is where I live, it especially is meaningful to me. I think there's a lot of people who think that they do do that, But when you actually put under a microscope, it only really extends to their family, their neighborhood, Mm. the people they know, the businesses they care about, the politicians that they support. Um, And I would just like to see more kindness and compassion for even the things that maybe you don't understand or you don't think is right. You can still—I've been listening to a lot of Mr. Rogers' podcast, that one, Finding Fred— uh-huh. And it's a, they talk a lot about how do you have empathy for people who you fundamentally disagree with? How do you have compassion for somebody whose rhetoric you absolutely don't agree with in anyone, any way, shape, or form? Yeah. Um, and I think people have a lot of really strong opinions in Seattle. And for a lot of people, it makes them think it's okay to tear other people down or hurt other people. And I have been trying myself— To think about, you know, everyone was a child once and everyone's kind of living with those experiences shaping the way they're perceiving everything happening to them. And when somebody is bothering me or something is making me feel like I'm under attack, I really try to think about that person as a child and that little inner person inside of them and try to respond as kindly as I can, even if I'm not saying I agree with you, I there's no reason to be cruel or to try to hurt in return. I think that Seattle could live up to its progressive reputation if we could all just try a little bit more to react first with compassion before starting a fire about it.
1: Mm-hmm. To learn more about Raven Juarez, visit RavenJuarez.com. And you can also follow her on her Instagram page, which is Raven underscore in the trees. Raven Juarez, thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. This is fun. Thank you.
3: Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By The Sound is a community-invested podcast... What does that mean for our listeners?
1: Ah, glad you asked. It means that in addition to hearing our conversations about local issues and interviews with our most interesting Seattle-area neighbors, fans of the show can join our listener community online by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Doing so will unlock access to our private Facebook group.
3: What are we posting in the Facebook group?
1: (laughs) Well, in addition to exclusive previews about what we'll be discussing on the show— We offer a curated stream of the best and most provocative local news stories each day.
3: That's dope. How much will it cost to join?
1: Our online community membership is available to all patrons starting at $5 per month.
3: How else can fans of the show invest in this community?
1: Our supporters on Patreon, who contribute $10 or more per month, will receive exclusive invitations to buy the sound meetups at Seattle area coffee shops, bars, and parks, where they could meet by the sound co-hosts, guests, and other local fans of the show. Sweet
3: where should listeners go to donate?
1: They can visit ByTheSound.net and click on the donate button. That's ByTheSound.net. Or go directly to Patreon.com slash ByTheSound. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash ByTheSound. Chelsea couldn't be with us today. Um, She's recovering from cats. Yeah, she was last seen uh, in a basket um in muttering <laughs> yes uh muttering something about scramble shanks and the railway cat it's,
0: and it's, just it's
1: sad um so but that's okay raven juarez has kindly agreed to uh discuss an article that asia has brought to us um it's in crosscut
0: Yes. New signage could make Seattle more accessible for pedestrians with disabilities. The city plans to incorporate Braille and information about hill slopes in the signage revamp. So um, coming up on the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, I wanted to highlight something good the city of Seattle is doing that's not shitty um, and related to shitting on homeless people, people without homes. So... This I actually need to name that I've been impressed with. Um, I do take public transportation quite often, uh, even though I do own a car. Um, I love the cuts in the crosswalks. I love when I press to um, what's the word go to cross the street. It says wait, wait. Uh, that's pretty cool. I like there. There are aspects of this city that I've been to many cities in this country, I travel often, that I appreciate there is an effort so to be accessible to folks who um, have really a range of disabilities, including mobile, but also uh, site limitations.
1: During... My short time at Seattle City Council uh, working for Kirsten Harris Talley, one issue being debated at the time was funding for the Central City streetcar, which since then has become even more controversial. Some might say infamous for uh, a number of reasons, but we were bringing some skepticism to the project as for if it was the highest and best use of uh, transit funds, if it was the most equitable but one group that reached out to us uh, as we were signaling uh, some skepticism about the project was disability rights advocates here in the city because downtown, you know, practically all of it from uh, at least Pine to, to Yesler is on a very steep slope. Mm-hmm. So to get from any, anywhere close to the waterfront up to the top of the hill— You pretty much have to be aware of a complicated network of elevators and buildings which are open to the public. Some of them are, some of them are not. The city has had a deal where there's been incentives for the buildings to be open to um, the general public so that hill climb assistance can exist for people with uh, mobility issues. And what we were hearing from the advocates is that, you know, with with the streetcar, there's that at-grade entry to walk on, walk off, which is super efficient for people um, in chairs or with other mobility uh, challenges. And to, to have that line going from all along the waterfront and then up, um, I believe, Pine and Stewart, or Stewart um, right past Westlake, would be very convenient. So, that, that's just not something that we thought of at all, you know, at, at first glance. It seemed sort of like a boutique y touristy kind of train project, but um, I can see how that would be really helpful and perhaps preferable to the kind of mishmash system we have right now. But mostly what I'd like to see in Seattle for every kind of pedestrian is sidewalks and up here in District 5 and down on the the southern end of the city. There were all these formerly unincorporated parts of the county that were absorbed by Seattle over the decades where sidewalks were never built. And I'm tired of hearing that it's too expensive because we've seen such radical changes in our transportation network, especially with bike lanes. And I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, these things have to be pitted against each other necessarily, but I feel like the bike lanes and the, the proliferation of them is basically benefiting able-bodied people.
0: Wealthy people who own bikes. What, what I think folks don't realize is we're all temporarily abled. We if we break a leg, we realize quickly how difficult it is to get around mm-hmm. in a different way. Right, mm-hmm. um, as we get older, I have I am forty nine, so I have a lot of things creaking that didn't creak even ten years ago. And and what what we you were speaking about kindness um, and wanting people to be more kind earlier, Raven. And one of the things I was thinking is. Paying our taxes and being in this together is part of kindness mm-hmm. and community, right? Yep. The reason why... nothing There is no fucking shortage of money in this fucking city, in this fucking state, in this fucking country. It is a scarcity mentality that is rooted in white supremacy culture, that is rooted in this model that only certain people are worthy, mm-hmm. and everybody else is fucking worthless. Mm-hmm. And what what we need to do is start planting seeds of... make this a less car accessible. If we let's make it more difficult for cars, let's make it, you know, let's have more trains, let's have more bikes and let's make those bikes that are everywhere for free. Let's make the sidewalk, more sidewalks, build the sidewalks, finish building them so people can walk and, and let's invest in money that people are hoarding money. Like we, we, there, I've not seen the show, but I've heard a reality show of hoarders, right? Yeah. And how it's basically exploiting people who have challenges, right? Yeah. And, and you know there's all kinds of judgments of hoarding and hoarders of things. Mm-hmm. But we don't fucking judge people who hoard money. Although there's plenty of judgment now going around with people hoarding money. But that's what it is. It's hoarding yeah. money. And there's no reason for it. And given what? The planet has 20, 12 years? Between 12 and 20 years maybe. That, that It's a scarcity of imagination. It's greed. There's no reason not. It's We could fix. It's interesting you bring
2: up hoarders. Because I did a lot of thinking about those kind of like pop therapy shows in college, um, like uh, Freaky Eaters, My Strange Addiction, Hoarders, all those. And they really try to like shame people into changing, this is how many French fries you've eaten in a month. This is how much garbage you had in your attic. And uh, they expect that to somehow change the way that these people are coping with life. And nobody ever calls out when somebody is hoarding money or hoarding wealth. They're just like, wow, what a successful person. And it really comes from a really similar place of there's something uh, mentally that you're struggling with that needs to be addressed. Compulsive. Yeah, that's compulsive and maybe sociopathic. I don't know. but. I feel like it's really interesting that you brought that up because it's very similar. It's something that needs to be addressed with compassion and with an understanding of how did our society get to a place of sickness instead of being like wow, good job you guys and shame on you other group of people who have the same compulsions, it's just manifesting in different ways.
1: And with with all disability rights issues, it is I love that what you said about being um temporarily mm-hmm. able-bodied because it's ultimately that failure of imagination and failure of empathy. And, you know, I'm not saying- Because people
2: can't imagine suddenly not having the privilege that they walk around with. It doesn't yeah. occur to them until it's happening.
1: Yeah. And like, there, there are so many things in life, you know, if so many Americans are, you know, a bad car accident or, you know, a health crisis away from- uh, homelessness, um, mm-hmm. it ought to be easier for us to imagine ourselves in the shoes of the homeless people we see and, and to develop that empathy. And it's absolutely the same thing with disability. Mm-hmm. What's
0: weird is people in the United States are more willing to imagine themselves becoming somehow a fucking millionaire, billionaire. a billionaire mm-hmm. before they'll, and they're more likely to be in need of a service or of help. Mm-hmm. And that we've attached shame to that. Mm-hmm. But somehow this, and I think it goes back to. Like it's your fault if something. It's your fucking fault. But good for you if right. you're on the other end of the somehow spectrum. Somehow you, you weren't the recipient of privilege. You were a hard worker. Mm-hmm. And let's fucking unpack those words because who's more hardworking than a fucking migrant worker who's working 16 hours a day to pick our fucking food so we can mm-hmm. have strawberries for $3.99? Mm-hmm. And, and that is it connected to the, to the dis, you know, folks with disabilities because we're all have something or because, you know, I think the number that was, um, I saw online earlier was 23% or 25% of the U.S. population lives with a disability. And those are the ones that probably are born with. But at some point in our life, I mean, I've had my uterus taken out. I've had two kids through surgery. I've had, you know, I mean, we've all had the, I think... Most of us have had some version of being incapacitated due to an illness or Mm -hmm. due to, again, breaking a leg or an arm or something. And yet we forget that immediately, like right when we get better. The other issue I want to name is microphones. Always use a microphone when you are in a large space. Do not don't just yell. (laughs) That is a huge thing. And I've had. And I'm a, a, a loud talker,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I still use a microphone and ask other people to use a microphone, and inevitably, every, every single time I've done this, at least one person will walk up to me and thank me afterwards and say thank you for not asking
2: mm-hmm. and just
0: doing it. And that's an accessibility issue
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, because we, you know our hearing starts to go, right?
2: People in America, I think there's something about people in America feeling like, You are, you deserve to have a certain ease in the world because you've done something that made your life, you deserve it. You deserve to have an easy time because you did, you checked whatever boxes. Um, one thing I really like about Italy and the Reggio culture there is in Reggio, uh, schools, they purposely always have one child in every classroom who has special needs or learning differences. And, um, Part of the curriculum and part of the classroom's work is for all of the children to come together and help that child be successful through the day you know they take turns like helping them put on their coat they take turns guiding them through the lesson of the day they take they play with the child they involve them in uh, their dramatic play and in their art and um, a lot of the teacher focus is actually on that one child, and they're relying on the other children to be a support to that one child. And I love that because it teaches kids from a young age, you get to be of service in your life. And this is how you can do something that matters with the skills you already have, with the perspective you already have, and you don't need to be the grown-up in the room to help somebody. And I think that that's really building a healthy and strong community there.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of that. that community ethos you were describing as, mm-hmm. as part of that. And I it's... Uh, I have a developmentally disabled son, and I have contorted my life to make sure that he is in a k through eight school where he would be with the same cohort from mm-hmm. kindergarten. yeah, we don't the- do
2: that for kids here. They get put in a separate place and they're like, well, this is what's best for him or her this was best for her. It's actually just what's easiest for what they can do to like this way the system is. It just makes the most sense to other them because that's way it just doesn't disrupt the system they already have going.
1: Whatever is efficient and it's harmful. To it's view harmful. The children as as sort of cogs and you know some things are just crazy. Like I am mean, junior highs or I guess I call them middle schools now. You know being just three sometimes t- just two years. That's a lot of. Uh, change and disruption in communities. And it really is important, I think, for, you know, like say in the case of my son, to know that he came into kindergarten and was getting to know all these kids who were able to accept him with his uh, beauty Mm -hmm. and his sweetness and his uh, particular uh, character. You know, this way... The, the idea is that, you know, once he gets up there to the junior high years, to seventh and eighth grade, you know, all the – the his classmates will just be like, oh, well, that, that's just mm-hmm. – we mm-hmm. you know him.
2: That's our friend. And yeah. they have – they're not noticing the differences. They're noticing mm-hmm. all the things that make him special to them, all their memories and their relationships. Relationship building, I can't stress this enough, I think is the most important thing for kids, um, especially – like the kindergarten through fifth grade, those relationships really do so much to build that child's sense of self and their sense of belonging and not just for the child who maybe we're talking about who like needs that advocacy to be in that place, but it does better for the children who get to be friends with somebody who's not just like them. It's better for them to learn how to appreciate people for who they are and then they become stronger versions of themselves and that radiates out into every other place that they go the rest of their lives. And I really... Ooh, I really have a problem with people separating children based on learning differences or uh, how able-bodied they are, or anything like that. It's just it's a disservice to the child, and it's a disservice to the community that you're keeping them out of.
0: It's also against our when you when we study anthropologically human history and the more successful um, uh, cultures, yeah, there was no separating. Fo- you know, folks always stayed together, mm-hmm. right? all ages it was multi it was an affirmation of who people were as part of the community yeah you play a special role you play a special role and and that that we've you know this the thing I wish for and why I'm kind of trying so hard in, in the faith community I'm a part of is to learn how to you know how do we be pl- this country this United States is a great experiment right so it, it started up pretty fucked up and <laughs> every time we try to fix it fucking you know we go back and it's still, there's a resiliency and there's still a resistance that, like this, right? Like I come to Seattle, I meet Sarah two years later, we're in a podcast that focuses on issues that maybe aren't being talked about as often. There's so much that's gone wrong in this country. And then there's stuff where there's, there's an Americans with Disabilities Act. And there were people mm-hmm. who simply, you know, protested by themselves in wheelchairs and and for years who said, you know what, fuck you, I'm going to... Work hard to change the system, and so it's huge that we have this anniversary um, and and awareness and a desire to to affirm people. At the same time, there's these attacks on it feels like just humanity itself and life itself on earth. So let's keep affirming each other. And I, I also want to lift up because the first when you started um, describing the Reggio class, it was like, Oh, I hope that child's not tokenized, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like it's an affirmation of you're part of the community mm-hmm. and we actually need to be paying. It's, it's not about being colorblind or pretending people are the same. No, it's it's saying this is exactly what you need mm-hmm. and we're going to work together to make sure you get it. Mm-hmm. And that's beautiful. And
1: yeah. we started by, talking about empathy. And I believe the legislative history of the ADA was pushed along greatly by Bob Dole, which was surprising in that he was a Republican leader. And the American with Disabilities Act is just super not Republican because it, you could argue, um, is requiring A lot of businesses, of private enterprise, of it's it's getting into the business of everyday people and telling them what they need to do for a better society. And typically, Republicans aren't having any of that. But Bob Dole... (laughs) You know, he lost a hand in World War II.
2: And suddenly he has empathy.
1: And suddenly he has (laughs) empathy. George uh, Bush Sr. had similar empathy. I'm I'm forgetting his particular— George
0: H.W. Bush on July 26, 1990 signed the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it was the world's first comprehensive Declaration of Equality for Hmm. People with Disabilities It was a collaborative effort of Democrats, Republicans, the legislative and executive branches, federal. I could cry. Like, can't we come back to this shit? (laughs) Well,
1: it took a really long time, and it had we had to get to a place where empathetic Republicans were able to get over their own fucking ideology, and you know, because it applied to their life experiences.
2: I think it's so important to like what with these kids that I teach and have been teaching for years. That idea of community, it comes so naturally to them. It comes so organically, like I'm your friend and you're my friend and we share this space and we're sharing this time. And it's only as they get older that we start to see like, you know, I'm noticing the differences. I'm starting to feel divisiveness. And it's up to educators and parents to help kids navigate through that. Because I think if we do it correctly and we start young and we make it the norm for young children, we're going to see in like 20 years when those kids are growing up I don't think we're capable of having the ideas yet and the innovations that children raised mm. with that focus will be able to mm-hmm. have someday. Mm-hmm. That's and what gives me hope anyway. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I feel like a lot of our political problems and the emergence of a country that could vote – Donald fucking Trump into office uh, through the electoral college has a lot to do with the lack of civics education. Hmm. N- you know, the emphasis placed on STEM is like I I I don't I don't want to say you know I don't want to be anti science math engineering medicine like it's. But those have been so focused on for economic reasons. Yes there's been this you know lessening of arts funding, this lessening of social studies and civics education. So no wonder we're becoming a society of people who you know maybe they can become dentists but mm-hmm. are blooming idiots when it comes to government.
2: You know what's interesting is I've actually had parents when I talk about teaching art to very young kids, they're like, "Oh well, we don't really do that at home because we don't want him to grow up to be an artist. <sighs> We really, we really don't like, we really want them to be like, you know, and they'll rattle off with. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I'm not teaching art to your child so they'll become a famous artist. That, I mean, if I knew how to do that, I would be one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's be clear. Yes. I'm teaching them art to build all these other skills and to make them feel secure in themselves and proud of themselves. And no matter what they go through their life, they have an anchor that's rooted deep in their identity that they built for themselves. It's not about teaching them specific skills. It's about just learning how to be an open-minded, grounded, strong person, capable child. And it's so weird to me that parents feel like that's an affront somehow to the parenting they're doing. Like I'm undoing their child's uh, ability in the future to make a to good be living. And yeah, the only way
0: to be
1: valuable or to, is to get to into a good money. college. And they're going to need to get over this control freak thing. Too. I, mean, I mean,
2: people are so stressed out about their child's earning potential, yeah. that they won't let them just enjoy, be people.
1: Every kid has different um, aptitudes and it's, you You can't control what's going to happen, um, but you can nourish like what is is there. You can nourish that tree you get, you know? Mm-hmm. So what I'm always telling my 14-year-old with his particular skill set is if you want to be rich and it interests you, Become a deal lawyer. You'll you'll kill at it. If you want job security, okay, study plumbing or becoming an electrician. Yep, true. If you want to use your other skills, you could be a poet or a painter, and you will have a rich life. Mm. Most importantly, I tell him that I will love him no matter which way it goes, um, but whatever that and won't be in the like podcast. You'd be proud too, I will be proud. Absolutely, yeah. I, I well, what I've been trying to foster throughout their lives is good mental health, mm-hmm. uh, That's happiness. the Best
2: gift you can give,
1: like to face the challenges in this world, and um, I want them to have the tools to. Survive emotionally. Yes, be and part of that, a big part of that, is having community-based skills, and um, that's from from the start of both of their educations. I've wanted to find classrooms that nourish their community orientation and those social studies and and civics sensibilities that aren't necessarily being taught and well that's
2: so awesome to hear you say like as a mom and as a community member cuz i really feel like People always stress about, you know, building your child's individual identity and helping them feel confident and strong in their individual identity. And I believe that's so true, but equally as important is building their identity as a community member. Who am I in the context of my classroom? Who am I in the context of my community? Who am I in the context of my city? Just like children at home have their own role that they play, something that they bring to the table, something they're valued for, something that they do that's Mm -hmm. special in that context. There's something that they bring to every other context and identifying it early and empowering them to use it. Like for you, your voice and your um, like just creating something like this that brings people together, that's your identity as a community member. And I think the younger that kids are empowered to like realize that in themselves, the more they're going to be able to do it and the better our world will be for it.
3: Sarah, Chelsea, when you say that by the sound is a community invested podcast, what does that mean for me?
1: Um, You're getting paid, Chelsea. I'm getting paid. Yeah. And so are Aisha and myself. We value people's time at by the sound and we know that rent isn't cheap here in Seattle.
3: So, what did our donors get out of this arrangement?
1: Well, the more donations we receive, the more episodes we're able to produce. Their support also funds our activities to build our local By The Sound community. This is another way in which we're becoming a community-invested podcast. Cool beans. How can listeners donate? They can visit ByTheSound.net and click the Donate button. That's ByTheSound.net. Or they can go directly to Patreon.com slash sound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound. Aisha, what are you grateful for this week?
0: I am grateful for Vanessa, who is our bookkeeper at church. She is amazing, and um, she is a, a woman from Puerto Rico who is going to go out on her own at halftime and offer bookkeeping services to especially small businesses in the area. So, I adore Vanessa, and... She has a huge heart and um, takes care of the staff, and I just adore her. So, um, Vanessa, I love you, and I appreciate you, and that's my gratitude this week. How about you, you, Sarah? You would
1: recommend her? I would
0: recommend her. I will get put her information in the show notes. I hope she has a website. If she doesn't, we'll share her email. Well, she
1: yeah, she may have. Yeah,
0: I'll get get her her permission to do that. I will. I think she will love it. Great. How about you, Sarah? What are you grateful for? Um,
1: for my. Slowly returning health. Okay. Uh, The last couple of podcasts have been particularly hard to edit because I've had to listen to um, my full head and um, I've had a cold. I mean, Mm. basically, I'm sitting here whining about having had a cold, but it's like the cold that won't go away. And Chelsea thinks it's because I'm allergic to cats. I think that too. Fuck! I'm not. No, no, no. I
2: think I had that cold for like a month.
1: Okay. See, see. I'm okay, not allergic. Okay. So you're not allergic. It, 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 it's the or cold. you're both in denial. Damn I don't it. have a cat. There. No. See. Proof.
0: So. <laughs>
1: it's been yes. going around. Yeah. Raven, what are you grateful for?
2: I'm really excited for my winter break to be over and to get back to work. I had two weeks off, which is the biggest break I've ever had from teaching, because my last school only gave us like four or five days. So two weeks felt like a really long time. And in that time, we moved our first, like we officially moved into our apartment on New Year's Day. Uh, Everything was finally out of the old place and in, and we were moving all through the holidays and it just was insane. Like I didn't have time to actually do my artwork because everything was in boxes. I wasn't getting time with the kids so I was like kind of had pent up energy and it just felt like a really long time and I'm excited to get back to work on Monday and get back to my new routine and start painting and start a new series so I'm just excited for the new year.
1: Raven Juarez thank you very much.
2: Thank you this has been awesome.
1: By the Sound is your community invested podcast. By the sound is an ahoy hoy media production. ahoy hoy.